0: the country can survive a round of bad policy, the country can't survive torching the Constitution. I may have to try.
1: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight.
2: That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm too scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Oh, hey there. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and your favorite podcast site, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today as we continue to fight like hell Going on nearly 20 years now to protect what is left of your democracy. Uh, We begin today with a bit of inspiration from an unlikely source, uh, particularly unlikely for someone who is in no way religious like myself. (laughs) Okay. Don't laugh. I'm not. Uh, Certainly, I'm not Catholic. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hello. Are you Catholic?
1: (laughs) No, I am not. Oh, you
2: are not either. Well, so this uh, also odd for me to share this with you, I guess. The Pope has written a bit of an essay on journalism, which, uh, as, as noted, I'm, I'm choosing to use as inspiration here today and really every day. Uh, Upon reading it, as it kind of hits home around here for some reason, as Il Papa wrote in part to journalists around the world, even at one point literally thanking them, by the way, for exposing long buried corruption of many types in his own church, as the Pope writes in part. I want in some way to pay homage to your entire community of work to tell you that the Pope loves you, follows you, esteems you, considers you precious. Journalism is reached not so much by choosing a profession as by launching oneself on a mission, a bit like a doctor who studies and works so that evil is cured in the world. Your mission is to explain the world, to make it less dark, To make those who live there fear it less and look at others with greater awareness and also with more confidence. It is not an easy mission, he writes. It is difficult to think, meditate, deepen, stop to collect ideas and to study the contexts and precedents of a news item. The risk, you know well, is that of letting oneself be crushed by the news instead of being able to make sense of it. The Pope says, this is why I encourage you to preserve and cultivate that sense of mission, which is at the origin of your choice. And I do it with three verbs that I think can characterize good journalism. Listen, deepen, tell. Interestingly enough, uh, the Pope does not mention anything about journalists getting more traffic, (laughs) getting more hits to their websites or, or even getting attention to one's stories to winning the news of the day on the internet he doesn't mention that he doesn't bring that up go figure but to but to think meditate deepen stop to collect ideas and to study the contexts and precedents of a news item despite the risk of letting oneself be crushed by the news instead of being able to make sense of it boy howdy does that strike home today
1: i'm sure it does
2: and pretty much every day these days thanks papa I'll take it. Uh, Welcome to the broadcast where we uh, start here and hope you will not be crushed by it either, but rather make sense of it so we can all better take action on it. Starting here, our friend uh, Ari Berman at Mother Jones via Twitter on Monday, quote, breaking. Georgia legislature passes gerrymandered state Senate map, giving GOP 59 percent of the seats in a state that Biden won by 49.5%. 100% of the population growth, he notes, in the past decade in Georgia is from communities of color, but maps create no zero new majority minority seats and entrench white GOP power for the next decade. And then this today from Ari Berman again breaking Ohio Senate passes extreme gerrymandered congressional map giving Republicans 80% of seats in a state that Donald Trump won with just 53% of the vote. Ohio and Georgia, of course, are the, just the latest to take already gerrymandered maps from 2010 and make them even more extremely so following the 2020 census. Now that the Supreme Court has lifted the otherwise long-standing protection of the Voting Rights Act to prevent extreme partisan gerrymanders, You can't rely on the Voting Rights Act anymore to stop that, and it is just the latest example of why, at least in lieu of reforming the Senate filibuster to allow passage of the Freedom to Vote Act, which bars partisan gerrymandering in all 50 states, in lieu of that, I believe that democratically controlled states, as much as I hate saying it, as much as I hate holding this position, I believe that those states controlled by Democrats should now do the same wherever they can. ...to at least try to counter this in plain sight takeover of at least the U.S. House, such that, as we previously reported, even if America votes exactly as it did in 2020... When it casts seven more million votes for Joe Biden over the other guy and five million more votes for Democratic candidates to the U.S. House than Republican candidates to the U.S. House, even if America votes exactly that same way in 2022, guess what? Republicans will take majority control of the House. Thanks to this extreme partisan gerrymandering now going on all over the country in states controlled by Republicans. And with it, with that majority, That they will win in 2022 at this rate. They will be able to then steal the 2024 presidential election if they so choose in a way that they were not prepared to do in 2020, but they are clearly preparing to do right now. So please pay attention. And to that end, I'm uh, finding the drumbeat of authoritarianism is sort of underscoring pretty much everything that I'm looking at with concern today a drumbeat which Republicans, for some reason, seem to have an easier time uh, dancing to than the rest of us. (laughs) We ended yesterday's broadcast following the uh, signing of Joe Biden's landmark $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, about which Desi Doyen will have a few more details later today for us in her Green News report. Yes. But uh, we we ended uh, uh, following that signing on the death threats that the few Republicans in the House who voted for that bill have been receiving of late, particularly since the authoritarian so-called Freedom Caucus in the House began calling for their fellow Republicans who voted for the bipartisan bill. To lose their seats on House committees. And since Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, described the bill, uh, an uncontroversial, by the way, uncontroversial and wildly popular bipartisan infrastructure bill, you know, to uh, build roads and bridges, a bill supported by 19 Republican uh, U.S. Senators including Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. She decided to describe that bill as, quote, a communist takeover of America. Before she then went on to publish the phone numbers of the 13 Republicans in the House who voted for it, resulting in folks like Michigan's Fred Upton receiving death threats. Death threats over an infrastructure bill, for Christ's sake, that sounded, uh, some of uh, those calls that sounded in in part like this. You dumb mother****. Traitor, piece of, <laughs> piece of trash. Hope you die. Hope your family dies. Hope everybody your staff dies. You piece of traitor. <laughs> traitor
1: over infrastructure.
2: Yes, because Republican Fred Upton of Michigan voted to spend money to fix crumbling roads and collapsing bridges. Appearing on CNN on Sunday, uh, Upton said, quote, It's a sad day when he faces threats for a bipartisan agreement on infrastructure. as Some House Republicans have now turned against their own 13 colleagues who voted for that bipartisan bill, which they paint as, quote, the pathway to socialism. Now, the Democrats have scored a legislative victory that the Trump administration failed to score for Four years in office, I guess pathway to socialism is better than communist takeover of America, maybe, but give them time. Republican Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio on Sunday also lamented the threats that he also received after both he and Upton broke ranks from former President Trump and and their colleagues with the votes that they cast in the past year on both the infrastructure bill and if you think that was terrible, the votes they cast for Trump's second impeachment after he incited the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol to try and steal the 2020 election. As a bipartisan 5743 majority in the U.S. Senate agreed that Trump was guilty of having done during his second impeachment trial. Donald Trump has already endorsed a primary challenger for Fred Upton for his sins. Gonzalez, for his part, has decided not to run for re-election. He was asked during an interview on Sunday by Jake Tapper on CNN about receiving death threats after voting for Trump's impeachment earlier this year and about Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, including, yes, on January 6th.
0: He came very close to overturning an election through various methods... How worried are you that next time he'll be better positioned and he'll undermine democracy it looks to me and i think any objective observer would come to this conclusion that he has evaluated what went wrong on january 6th why is it that he wasn't able to steal the election who stood in his way every single american institution is just run by people and you need the right people to make the right decision in the most difficult times he's going systematically through the country, and trying to remove those people and install people who are going to do exactly what he wants them to do, who believe the big lie, who will go along with anything he says. Um, and again, I think it's all pushing towards one of two outcomes. He either wins legitimately, which he may do, um, or if he if he loses again, he'll just try to steal it. But he'll try to steal it with his people in those positions, and and that's then the most difficult challenge for our country. You ask yourself the question, do the institutions hold again? Do they hold with a different set of people in place? I hope so, but you can't guarantee it. Um, the country, as much as I despise almost every policy of the Biden administration, and we could talk about that for you know, six hours, um, the country can survive a round of bad policy. The country can't survive torching the constitution. We have to hold fast to the Constitution. That needs to be the bedrock upon which we build our party and our movement. Uh, we have to be a party of ideas. We have to be a party of truth. And if the cold hard truth is Donald Trump led led us into a ditch on January 6th. The former president lied to us. He lied to every one of us. And in doing so, he cost us the House, the Senate, and the White House. I see fundamentally a, a person who shouldn't be able to hold office again because of what he did around January 6th. But I also see somebody who's an enormous political loser. And I don't know why anybody who wants to win elections going forward would follow that. I simply, like, I don't get it ethically. I certainly don't get it politically. Neither of them makes sense. If he's the nominee again in 24, I will do everything I personally can to make sure he doesn't win. Now, I'm not voting for Democrats. But Whether that's find a viable third party or whether that's try to defeat him in primaries, whatever it is, um, that's going to be where I'll spend my time. Because you're worried about what he'll do to democracy? Yeah, I don't trust him. January 6th was the line that can't be crossed. January 6th was an unconstitutional attempt led by the president of the United States to overturn an, an American election and reinstall himself in power illegitimately. That's fallen nation territory, that's third world country territory. My family left Cuba to avoid that fate. I will not let it happen here. Can I stop him? I have no idea. But I believe as a citizen of this country who loves this country and respects the Constitution, that's my responsibility.
2: Congressman Anthony, Anthony Gonzalez, Republican of Ohio, calling Donald Trump a political loser, saying he will do anything he can to prevent him from being elected, except, of course, voting for a Democrat. You know, at one point, uh, despise Congressman Gonzalez. You despise every one of Joe Biden's policies. How about you disagree with them? How about you might do things a different way? Yes, as much as I'm happy to hear Gonzalez uh, speak the way he's speaking, uh, at least in regard to Donald Trump, Republican Congressman Gonzalez, anthony gonzalez is also part of the problem that he now decries that has now come back to bite him that world that he lives in where he he doesn't disagree with the uh, democratic president's policies he despises them but that's how authoritarianism works as joni mitchell might say you don't know what you got until it's gone I'm glad that he now believes he is on the right side of the Constitution and the country. And yes, we will take all the allies that we can find in this very real fight for democracy itself right now. Even Fred Upton and even Anthony Gonzalez. And yes, even Liz frickin Cheney. According to the Casper Wyoming Star Tribune today, Wyoming Republican leaders voted this weekend to no longer recognize Congresswoman Cheney as a member of their party.
1: Good Lord.
2: Are you hearing the drumbeat? The resolution passed uh, the Wyoming GOP Central Committee by a vote of 31 to 29, so it was kind of close. The largely symbolic move came after roughly nine county Republican parties in the state voted to no longer recognize Cheney. A number of those county central committees, according to the Star Tribune, passed the resolution with much wider margins than the state committee did, with some passing the resolution unanimously to remove Liz Cheney from the Republican Party. A Cheney spokesperson responded to the uh, Star Tribune to say, quote, it's laughable to suggest Liz is anything but a committed conservative Republican. She is bound by her oath to the Constitution. Sadly, uh, he said a portion of the Wyoming GOP leadership has abandoned that fundamental principle and instead allowed them to be held hostage to the lies of a dangerous and irrational man. But the uh, state central committee, uh, they see it differently. They note in their resolution, uh, the, actually a resolution of censure that they had previously passed before they went on to move uh, over the weekend to kick her out of the state party. The purge. Yep. In, back in their uh, censure resolution, they wrote Liz Cheney cast her vote in favor of impeachment without any quantifiable evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors. As to date, no quantifiable or undisputed evidence has been offered by Representative Liz Cheney to defend her questionable decision. Really? No evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors? How about a bipartisan 57-43 to majority vote in the U.S. Senate finding Trump actually guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors? That does not count as quantifiable evidence? The end of the resolution... That they passed over the weekend uh, made an appeal to congressional Republicans by asking that the, quote, House Republican Conference leadership immediately remove Representative Liz Cheney from all committee assignments and the House Republican Conference itself to assist and expedite her seamless exodus from the Republican Party. Liz frickin Cheney. The, uh, the paper notes that the sentiment that Cheney is not conservative or a Republican is actually—you'll be shocked to learn, Des. It's statistically inaccurate. Her voting record is actually staunchly what the paper calls conservative. During Trump's term, Liz Cheney voted with Trump on policy 93% of the time. That, they note, is a higher percentage than Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar, Florida Congressman Matt Gates, and a number of other lawmakers who are seen as staunch Trump allies. Cheney has also received solid grades from the prominent so-called conservative groups, including the Susan B. Anthony list and the National Rifle Association. But what Republicans are doing now is not about conservatism. As I've been trying to warn for years or about the rule of law or about the Constitution or even about Republicanism, it is about authoritarianism and the authoritarian wing of the GOP is now ascending. Pay attention to the drumbeat. Liz Cheney's greatest crime, of course, is serving as the vice chair on the U.S. House Select Committee investigating Donald Trump's attempt to steal an American presidential election. Culminating in the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th in hopes of, you know, preserving and defending American democracy and the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. House Select Committee is investigating that act. And of course, Republicans oppose both of those things, defending American democracy and the U.S. Constitution. They're against it. On New Year's Eve last year, then-White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows reportedly emailed then-Vice President Mike Pence's top aide a detailed plan on how to subvert Joe Biden's election victory, according to the upcoming book by ABC News reporter Jonathan Carl, who, by the way, is no lefty. He's anything but a lefty. This is true. Jonathan Carl, according to his book, former President Trump's lawyer, Jenna Ellis, outlined a multiple-step strategy in a memo that was sent to Pence's top aide as part of an effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election results amid Trump pushing election fraud falsehoods. In the memo, Ellis instructs Pence to send back the electoral votes from six battleground states— that Trump baselessly had claimed that he had won on January 6th, the day of the joint session of Congress certifying Biden's electoral victory. Ellis wrote that Pence would give the battleground states a deadline of, quote, 7 p.m. Eastern time on January 15 to submit a new set of votes. Send it back and give them, what, uh, nine days to come back with a different set of votes. You know, one that is other than one that was actually represented by the votes of the people in those states. Ellis, uh, and I can't believe she still has a law license at this point, she added that if any state legislature failed to meet that January 15 deadline, quote, no electoral votes can be opened and counted from the state. In that case, Ellis wrote that neither Biden nor Trump would be left with a majority of votes, meaning that Congress, quote, Congress shall then vote by state delegation, claiming that the scenario would then lead and it would would lead to Trump being declared the winner of the 2020 election because Republicans control the majority of state delegations with uh, with 26. So even with uh, Democrats having more Uh, members of Congress than Republicans, if you go state by state and decide, well, who has the majority in more states, it is Republicans. Unless, of course, they don't count uh, Liz Cheney as a Republican anymore. In that case, it wouldn't be uh, 26 to 24. It actually would be 25 to 25. Be careful what you wish for, Republicans. But basically, they were saying, That, you know, Mike Pence should send this back to the states, let them think better of what they have uh, of the electors that they have sent, let them realize they need to send in uh, Trump electors. And if they don't, if they don't send any new electors, then we're going to not count them at all, in which case that all changes the majority. Nobody gets a majority of the electoral votes. It gets sent to the House to be determined on a state by state delegation basis. That was the plan. And by the way, that was the plan that we told you about at the time. <laughs> yes. At the time that it was happening. Mark Meadows, Trump's uh, chief of staff, reportedly sent Ellis's memo to a Pence aide on January 1. The next day, Trump aide John McEntee, who was a 29-year-old uh, bag man for Donald Trump actually carried his bag, B- body man for Trump actually carried his bags, opened the doors for him, carried his lip balm, he was correct, he was elevated uh, to uh, what, what Jonathan Carl described as uh, pretty much a deputy president at some point. Uh, he issued another memo to Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short, that falsely asserted in its title that, quote, Jefferson, uh, I guess Thomas Jefferson, used his position as vice president to win. Days before the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, Trump told his supporters at a rally in Georgia that he hopes Pence, Pence, quote, comes through for us. So that was the plan. And we we did. We told you about it at the time, at a moment when, by the way, most of the media were ignoring what was about to happen on January 6th, which we also warned you about over and over and explained this specific plan that Republicans at the time were trying to pull off and Much of the media thought, oh, it was over, we're moving on. Hey, who's Joe Biden going to name for this seat or that secretary position? Ultimately, the Republicans didn't pull it off. But next time? Well, next time, they will be prepared. And you, and yes the Democrats will have been forewarned uh, to, you know, what many did not pay attention to last time, which is why it is so important that accountability be brought for what happened in 2020. The attempt to steal a presidential election by the sitting president of the United States and a whole bunch of folks who are now trying to avoid accountability that the U.S. House Select Committee, yes, with Vice Chair Liz Cheney, Republican, conservative Republican, is now trying to bring. And it won't be easy, as the party that represents about half the nation all the way down to the grassroots is now moving in Trump's direction, not in Liz Cheney's or Anthony Gonzalez's or Fred Upton's. The Spotsylvania County, Virginia school board directed staff last week to begin removing books that contain what they describe as, quote, sexually explicit material from library shelves and report on the number of books that have been removed. The criteria for pulling books from circulation uh, last week is, quote, sexually explicit. But the board plans to refine how other material is determined to be, quote, objectionable for a further review of library holdings. The board voted 6-0 to to order this removal. Any of this sounding familiar yet? Echoing anything that you may remember from your recent world history? Well, if not, maybe this should help. That unanimous decision by the Spotsylvania School Board actually came after a debate on, and I kid you not, whether those books should simply be removed from the libraries or whether they should be removed and burned. Sounding more familiar now, two board members, uh, Robbie Abuismeil and Kirk Twig said that they would like to see the removed books actually burned. Abuismeil, I'm, I'm, I'm botching his name and I'm not sorry. Anyway, Abuismeil <laughs> said, I think we should throw those books in a fire. Twig said he wants to, quote, see the books before we burn them so we can identify within our community that we are eradicating this bad stuff. Concerns seem to, be, seem to focus specifically on a young adult fiction book called 33 Snowfish by Adam Rapp, which is about runaways and has LGBTQ themes in it. TPM's Josh Marshall observed that to abysmal abism- the fact that the district's schools have raps books on their shelves mean that the schools, quote, would rather have our kids reading gay pornography than about Christ. Uh, Abismail made uh, news back in 2019 when he was the first elected to the school board at the age of 22. The youngest person ever elected to public office in Spotsylvania County. So they're getting them while they're young now, I guess. The Trump youth... If you will. For now, writes Josh, uh, they're only removing the books rather than burning them. They're going to start removing the sexually explicit books this week and get a report next week about how many books were removed. Kirk Twigg said that he'll want to broaden the ban beyond sexually explicit materials because, quote, there are some bad, evil related material that we have to be careful of and look at. And no, by the way, it is not only in one corner of Virginia uh, that this is happening, one corner of Virginia, where, by the way, a Republican governor-elect just won a very close statewide race after a campaign based on, yes, banning so-called critical race theory from K-12 through schools where it is not even taught. But it is not only Virginia. The Florida State Board of Education, the state board, over the summer approved a new rule banning critical race theory and the use of material from the New York Times 1619 project in the state's classrooms. To put that into words that brain-poisoned Fox News viewers may understand better, the state of Florida has canceled the teaching of America's long history of slavery and its continuing legacy in our current-day legal system, economy, and society at large. Canceled. During a meeting of the state school board over the summer, Florida's authoritarian Republican governor and potential presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis, said that the state must have an education, an education system that is, quote, preferring fact over narrative. Whatever that actually means. He said that means keeping, quote, Outrageous approaches such as critical race theory out of schools. Yes, the government, not parents, decided what can and cannot be taught in the state's schools. The government is canceling unapproved historical teachings and facts and current day implications of those facts.
1: As the saying goes, history is written by the victors.
2: According to experts... Critical race theory presupposes that racism is embedded within society and institutions, because, of course, it is. But I guess it's best not to educate students about that. The new rule in Florida comes after the Republican governor advocated against critical race theory in schools for months after he was unable to convince Florida lawmakers to consider an actual state law banning, yes, canceling the educational theory. When he promoted a civics education initiative earlier this year, he asked the uh, state education commissioner, Richard Corcoran, and the state board, state education board, who serve at the governor's pleasure to enact such a rule, according to the Miami Herald. And now for the record, the Florida State Board of Education is composed of seven members, including the commissioner. The other six members other than the commissioner are appointed by the governor himself, and then they choose the commissioner. In this case, Richard Corcoran, who was, as it turns out, recommended to the commission by the governor, at whose pleasure the, those commissioners actually serve. So, yeah, they're likely to choose the governor's man. In other words, Governor Ron DeSantis controls the state education commission. And Governor Ron DeSantis has canceled the teaching of things that he does not like in the state schools. Our friend Will Bunch of the Philly Inquirer and an occasional guest on this program over the years, commenting on all of this today in his newsletter, writes, There are good reasons why Nicole Hannah-Jones won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for her lead essay and work on The New York Times Magazine's 1619 Project, which showed how the original sins of slavery have remained embedded in the American experience for more than 400 years. The idea made the right so crazy that several states, he notes, have effectively outlawed teaching it to school kids. Today marks the publication of the book, The 1619 Project, a new origin story also edited by Hannah Jones and three others. It updates the original 11 essays in The Times Magazine's 1619 Project and adds seven new ones, new essays. Showing the straight lines between slave patrols and stop and frisk or how the New Deal was often a raw deal for black Americans. Ron DeSantis, Will Bunch notes, doesn't want you to read this book, which he says is all the more reason to buy it. Let's take a quick break here and the uh, drumbeat, yes, will continue with an example of how it actually helped to kill hundreds of thousands of Americans over the past two years, and what the hell we must do about it in this country. All of that fun and many, many (laughs) more laughs are straight ahead on the Pope-approved, I hope, broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. A World War II-era song that starts with a drumbeat. Hmm. Now, why would I think of that? (laughs) Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As the drumbeat of rising authoritarianism continues in this country, at least for those of us who care to notice anyway and to pay attention, for those of us who have been trying to warn for some time, for those of us who think action and accountability along with voting and the exercise of democracy, wherever it still exists in this country, are really the only things that have any chance of stopping the precipitous and threatening rise of the authoritarian wing of what was once the great old part, the grand old party, the Republican Party. According to The Washington Post, the Trump administration, remember them? They repeatedly interfered with efforts by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention last year to issue warnings and guidance about the evolving coronavirus pandemic. Six current and former health officials have told congressional investigators in recent interviews. That, according to Washington Post. CNN reports it this way. The House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Crisis released to CNN on Friday new evidence showing how CDC officials were pressured by Trump administration officials to alter scientific guidance and prevented from communicating directly with the public as the pandemic began began to ravage the nation uh, early last year, eventually resulting now in the deaths of, where are we, well over 750,000 Americans at this point. Politico writes, The emails and transcripts detail how in the early days of 2020, Trump and his allies in the White House blocked media briefings and interviews with CDC officials, you know, scientists, Attempted to alter public safety guidance normally cleared by the agency and instructed in uh, officials at the science based agency to destroy evidence Mm. that might be construed as political interference. Now that ordering officials to destroy evidence, that would suggest that they knew what they were, that they were committing a potential crime. Are you paying attention, Merrick Garland, over at the Department of Justice? Now, of course, we saw all of this happening in real time. I guess we didn't know that they were ordering each other to destroy the evidence, but we saw all of this going on at the time. But the committee's documentation of it all, including emails telling staffers to destroy emails, confirms what we all suspected was obviously afoot at the time as the Trump White House decided that, you know, needlessly allowing Americans to die, yes, actually killing Americans in the bargain, that that was the best way to help the failed president somehow win a second term last year. Something, by the way, that I never understood. I mean, because America has a tendency to rally around uh, their president in times of crises, And as a matter of fact, there was uh, when the uh, when this pandemic began, Americans actually did rally around Donald Trump. His approval ratings went up a few points for a while until he started acting like an idiot and then they fell back down. But so I'm not sure how, you know, pretending that this pandemic did not exist, how poo pooing, how calling it a hoax how saying oh don't worry about it go out there without masks have a uh, get together let's have a a, a a huge super spreader rally i'm not sure how that was ever a recipe for victory last november but that's donald trump for you
1: yeah that's donald trump's thinking and i don't think anyone can really figure out how his brain works
2: or wants to as talking points memo uh, nicole lafond uh, reports on this, uh, President Donald Trump and his administration's handling of the COVID 19 pandemic, particularly in the earliest days of the virus, the virus's spread in the U.S. was an unmitigated disaster. But new media reports and documents released by the Congressional Committee probing the prior administration's steering during the 2020 uh, d- during 2020 confirmed jarring new details about just how far the Trump White House went to interfere with the release of crucial public health-related information to the American people. At least six current and former public health officials revealed in recent testimony to the House Select Committee on the uh, House Select Subcommittee, I should say, on the coronavirus crisis, that Trump administration officials went out of their way to prevent the CDC from broadcasting warnings and guidance to Americans on necessary mitigation measures to slow the spread. The Trump bottlenecking began as early as February of 2020, when a fast action, frankly, might have actually prevented the worst public health disaster in more than 100 years. That bottlenecking began after CDC senior health expert Nancy Messonnier, remember her, after she warned the public and she was the first real warning that I think the public heard, or at least she tried to warn the public about the dangers of the spread of the virus. Remember this way, way, way back in February of last year, February 25, 2020, when there were only a few, uh, you know, a few dozen uh, infections and, and deaths known at the time. Here's what she had to say.
1: And I told my children that while I didn't think that they were at risk right now, we as a family need to be preparing for significant disruption of our lives. You should think about what you would do for childcare if schools or daycares close. Is teleworking an option for you? Secondary consequences of some of these measures might include missed work and loss of income. This whole situation may seem overwhelming and that disruption to everyday life may be severe. But these are things that people need to start thinking about now.
2: Nancy Messonnier on February uh, 25 of 2020 uh, issuing that warning Uh, on a, I think it was a CDC uh, conference call. Yes, a press call. uh, press call. Uh, Well, she was obviously right on the money about what would be happening and about how she was warning her own family about what would be happening. But, of course, her remarks at the time... Uh, apparently, not only angered Donald Trump, but they also served as a catalyst for some of the administration's dangerous stonewalling of crucial public health information. After those comments from Nancy Messanier, I'm not sure we ever heard uh, heard from her again. We didn't. She she uh, uh, apparently is now um, being interviewed by congressional investigators. She told them that her public forewarnings at the time resulted in. A uh, private lambasting from top Trump officials, including then Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. Remember him? According to uh, Politico, she told the committee, quote, I believed that my remarks were accurate based on the information that we had at the time. I heard the president was unhappy with the telebriefing. The White House, spurred on by her alert, reportedly then clamored to combat her messaging, resulting in Trump and other administration officials holding a damage control briefing just one day after Messanye's announcement, where Trump told the public that COVID's spread in the U.S. was actually not inevitable. The new reports and the documents outline a series of other actions that were taken by the White House to downplay the severity of the pandemic and to control CDC messaging on basic public health guidance to try and slow the spread. For example, when it comes to masks, a CDC, a senior CDC official in the agency's communication department reportedly told Congress that the White House went out of its way to keep the agency from holding media briefings in April of last year. She told Congress the agency wanted to put out messaging in April on the importance of wearing face coverings to contain the virus's spread. That effort, however, was blocked, she reportedly told Congress. She said, I think it would have been important for timely information to be kept coming from the CDC, Adding that uh, she was informed by a communications official in Vice President Pence's office at the time that the agency's press briefings were, quote, redundant alongside White House press briefings at the time. We don't need the CDC to give a briefing. The White House is doing that, doing that every day, largely led by Donald Trump himself and often hijacked to spew his own political grievances on just about anything. That is the sort of thing. That, uh, you know, a week or two on this show, Tom Hartman was our guest making the case for uh, mass homicide charges to be brought against Donald Trump. That is the sort of thing that the Department of Justice, in my opinion, ought to be investigating at this point, along with all of the other crimes by Trump and his clan. But if if the DOJ is doing it, well, we certainly know nothing about any such investigations, I hope they're doing it. I wish they were doing it. It certainly seems like they should be doing it. By the way, after I spoke with Tom, uh, I heard from uh, a number of attorneys about Tom's case. I hope to have time uh, in in the near future to to dig into some of those cases and share that with you. But, you know, bringing accountability for what happened, for what killed 700 and more than 750,000 people, Americans at this point. Well, you know, that's the sort of thing. Throwing those people in jail, that is the sort of thing that might help to reverse the authoritarian direction that this country is now in. It might. I don't know if it would for sure, but I think it's worth a try. A few comments that I did receive uh, via Daily Coast on that show with Tom, I-, I wanted to share you here. Share with you here. Finally, this is from Hodges. Finally, finally, that someone is saying the ugly part out loud. Orange Julius is guilty of mass murder. So are all those faux talking heads like teeny tiny Tucker think he means Tucker Carlson in I that case. So. Deliberately misinforming people that leads them to deny vaccinations, wearing masks and keeping socially distant is wrong and dangerous and telling people to inject bleach? How is this okay, Hodges writes. A bartender can be held liable for serving drinks. It's a felony offense to yell fire in a crowded theater when there isn't one. The TSA can detain a passenger trying to board a plane with a nail file in possession. So using a public service to spread lethal information on TV is okay. Using the People's House and a presidential podium to withhold information, suppress safety, and promote bleach injections is okay? They should be locked up at Guantanamo, writes Hodges, but first let there be a sea of angry believers who lost so much of so much because of false advertisements and deliberate disinformation that they hold Rupert and Tuck. And the former guy, Libel, if money is all they know, let them be sued to the dregs of a swamp. Coffee Mug writes, one more here before we get to our break. Uh, From the beginning of the COVID outbreak, there were calls of genocide because how specific groups were being targeted by the administration and Trump's son-in-law. And that, by the way, is the basis of Tom's uh, case for bringing secondary degree murder charges here that once the Trump administration... Found out that it was mostly affecting minorities in blue states, he no longer cared. Actually, the reporting now seems to be he no longer, he didn't care from the get go. Anyway, Coffee Mug goes on to write a forensic journalist, a good cop, a great prosecutor could, in fact, put it all together just from press releases and reports. The timeline is a clear matter of record. Where is the political will to do what is right? There is no country, there is no republic. Without accountability, you end up with a rogue state in collapse from the corruption. That is what we have today, writes Coffee Mug. There are still those at work reporting this genocide, but the story has been stuffed under the sheets of shame. Shame on all of us for not standing up for all of those that lost their lives. We all did this. Thank you, uh, Coffee Mug. Just some of the uh, responses uh, we received on that and the case that I believe should be brought against Donald Trump that is, is—is uh, uh, yes, not being discussed much in the media, and I have never understood that. So, yeah, we'll do our best. We will continue to discuss it right here on the broadcast, along with everything else that you need to know about. In this case, what you need to know about is that Desi Doyen <laughs> and the Green News Report is next, <laughs> where we talk about COP26 when, you know, No one else does. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
1: You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.
2: Oh boy. What a what a week. It's been a really really long week. <laughs> what? We're just starting this week? Yeah. Oh my god. All right. Well, let's uh, get to it's, it's actually been a long week, a long two weeks in uh, Glasgow, Scotland, as discussed in our latest Green News
0: report. Hearing no objections, it is so decided. <laughs>
1: U.N. Climate Summit ends with progress, compromises, and disappointment. Coal is down but not out in new Glasgow climate agreement. Plus... Today... We're finally getting this done. Joe Biden signs
2: landmark bipartisan infrastructure deal into law. All of those landmarks and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment.
1: I mean, first vaccine mandates and now Americans don't even have the right to die in a bridge collapse. (laughs) This isn't the country my grandfather died for in a bridge collapse.
2: This is your Green News Report.
1: I'm gonna soak up the sun.
2: Okay, Desi Doyen, it took an extra day or so and a lot of stress and tension and battles and last minute changes, but... They got it done at COP26.
1: Yes, they did. Exhausted negotiators from nearly 200 nations struck a deal in overtime on Saturday to work together to stave off the worst effects of climate change for current and future generations, despite last-minute attempts to water down the agreement. The Glasgow Climate Agreement clarifies key issues in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. There was major progress on a number of key issues, but nations did not agree on language that would push the kind of transformative action that scientists say is required to keep global warming to just 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. They finalized technical language on the most contentious parts of the rulebook for implementing the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement on monitoring, reporting, verification, and a global carbon emissions trading market. But gaps remain on emissions, finance, and fossil fuel production. Nations agreed to accelerate the deadline for ratcheting up their near-term climate targets to next year rather than 2025 in order to close the emissions gap between where we are and where we need to be.
2: So they're all going to come back
1: and do it again a year from now? We're going to have to go through all of this all over again? Yes, and that is a good thing. New analyses show that achieving countries' short-term targets for this decade will still warm the planet a catastrophic 2.4 degrees Celsius, far above the 1.5 degree target. Here's UN Climate Chief Patricia Espinoza.
0: This is a question of the long-term survival of humanity on this planet. It's imperative we see more climate action this decade to achieve it.
2: Saving humanity is exhausting.
1: Some key takeaways. The agreement explicitly used the words fossil fuels for the very first time ever. What? Coal was literally down, but not out. After China and India, in a last-minute maneuver, successfully watered down language establishing a global phase out of coal, they changed it to a phase down.
2: 26 years of climate conferences, and it's the first time one of their agreements includes the word coal Or fossil fuels.
1: I know, right? Similarly weakened wording called for phasing out billions in annual government subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. On Monday, China defended its maneuvers, saying wealthy countries should stop using coal first and provide financial aid to developing countries to adopt clean technologies. Isn't
2: China a wealthy country?
1: They don't think of themselves that way. I see. Wealthy countries, which have historically added the most greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, agreed to double their contributions to a climate adaptation and finance fund to assist developing countries that are hit hardest by climate impacts. However, the U.S. and the E.U. blocked a proposal to pay developing nations for loss and damage.
2: Why? What are they waiting for?
1: They're afraid of being held liable for that loss and damage of the past several decades.
2: Oh, because... We are liable for all the loss and damage of the past several decades.
1: Now, to be clear, the Glasgow Climate Agreement will not, and never was intended to, on its own, solve the climate crisis. And it is not enough to head off catastrophic warming. But major announcements at the summit, like global agreements to reduce methane and deforestation, a deal between the U.S. and China to work together to slow climate change this decade, and, of course, the writing now on the wall for the end of fossil fuels moved many prominent scientists to offer cautious optimism that the world still has a chance finally some good news for the u.s
2: today we're finally getting this done so my message to the american people is this america's moving again and your life is going to change for the better. If America's moving again, don't ask me to come over and help pack.
1: President Joe Biden signed into law the bipartisan infrastructure deal on Monday, a $1.2 trillion package that includes $550 billion in new spending to repair the nation's roads, bridges, rail, transit, ports, and water systems and increase clean energy, electric buses, start an EV charging network, and harden the nation's electric grid while all boosting climate resilience. It's the largest investment in infrastructure in decades, and the administration projects it will create millions of jobs over the next five years.
2: I'll take it. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. On the road
1: again. Just can't wait to get on the road again.
2: Thank you very much, Nessie Doyle. And by the way, there is, uh, while while we were uh, playing that there, uh, breaking news from the Washington Post, the Biden administration to submit treaty fighting hydrofluorocarbons a class of climate super pollutants to the Senate for approval.
1: Yes, this is an amendment to the Montreal Protocol, the world's first successful global climate agreement to phase out the chemicals used in refrigerations, which are you know known as HFCs and CFCs for short. This is a really good deal, a really big deal. I hope the Senate approves it quickly. And this is something that the industry, by the way, yeah. Is fully behind.
2: Is this what uh, Donald Trump had actually rolled back, even though the industry, the refrigeration industry, was in favor of it and he rolled it back anyway?
1: Uh, Yes, for no good reason that anyone can discern.
2: Uh, so now we are once again rolling back the rollback. Yes. I'm sure we'll have more on that in our upcoming Green News Reports. Until then, we got to get out. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, a single drum beat, <laughs> you can download it anytime for free at BradBlog.com. All of which, everything we do, is made possible by those of you who stop by BradBlog.com slash donate. To help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Bradblog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.